It's time to turn out the lights, grab some popcorn, and watch some horror movies. This is the Terrible Terror Podcast. Each episode, I delve into the world of horror movies. Why do I do it? Well, I can't really explain it, but I love these horrifying flicks. If you've made a horror movie on your phone or made your own special effects MacGyver style, please send it my way. Now, what do you get when you take up the love of parody, a love of horror flicks, and two great comedic minds while you get young Frankenstein? I'm, I mean, Frankenstein. and welcome to another episode of the Terrible Terror Podcast. And it's the episode that no one's been waiting for. That's right. It's the episode on Young Frankenstein. Um, This is a movie that actually I've wanted to talk about for a while because I have a huge love of Mel Brooks, and uh, as some people know. And it's one of those situations where I was like, how do I talk about this movie? How do I bring it into kind of your guys' ears? Uh, other than really going in and just fucking making a reason for me to do it. Now, I could have just done it, but really, I wanted to focus on two com- like comedic horror films uh, for this like coming section of horror movies. <laughs> this is already off to a bad start. But basically, I want to look at that. It's hard to look at like funny horror, because what is funny to you may not be funny to me, And what is fucking hilarious to me may not even strike a chord. This could be something that, like, oh my god, I've seen this movie a million times. I keep getting forced to watch this. Why the fuck are you doing this? Or it could be like, oh my god, I can't believe he's talking about this movie. Oh shit, he's gonna crap on a movie I fucking love. I'm gonna tell you right off the bat. One, again, everything's subjective. Two, uh, I'm not really gonna crap on it as much as maybe as you might think I am. Because some people think I could just crap on movies. Uh, but no, it, it's really just a film that I honestly truly love. Like, there's not many of Mel Brooks's films that I absolutely do not like. There's one of the more later ones that I'm kind of indifferent to. Like, there's a lot of really funny parts to it. But overall, I just don't think it's that great. And then there's a couple of the older ones where I'm kind of like, Oh, okay, I totally understand what you're trying to do here. But it's not as funny as it could be. For example, let's take The Producers. I think it's a really well done film, but I don't think it's for everybody. And I don't necessarily think that I like it that much. Like, if I had to rank it in terms of all of his films, it'd probably be towards the bottom. It's got some really great scenes in it, but overall, it's kind of like, just okay to me it's not my favorite now it's not to say that like oh these things i absolutely hate and everything's terrible or whatever in some of this filmography 
in general, I really like Mel Brooks's movies. It's just, if I had to put a couple of them towards the end, that's where they would be, because as much as I do like them, I don't like them as much as something, say, like Spaceballs. And that really puts me here in this place with Young Frankenstein. And um, the, the big thing for me with this film is that when I first watched it, when you know, getting into Mel Brooks's films and really understanding them, it was very hard for me to like this movie. But I was a very, very young kid. And like I said, Spaceballs is my absolute favorite Mel Brooks like, movie, period. I, I don't care what you think about it. I love it. And that's because as a kid, I loved the ever-loving shit out of movie. Like, it was one of those films that I would always put on. There, there was movies with my sister that the two of us could sit and watch it all the time. You know, The Last Unicorn is definitely one of those. The Hobbit, the old Hobbit, uh, the animated Hobbit. Uh, Spaceballs, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, when The Last Crusade came out, you know, I was a little bit older, but that was another one that could be on repeat. The Dark Crystal was another one. It, they were just, just these set of films that we always watched. And, you know, more than, like, I watch Spaceballs way more than The Empire Strikes Back, even though that's, like, my favorite of the Star Wars films. You know, it's probably a lot of people's favorites, too. But, in general, I would watch this Mel Brooks parody over the actual films. And so when it came to my dad, he's like, well, he really likes, you know, Spaceballs, so let's start showing him all the other ones. And Blazing Saddles, I was not ready for like, hands down, that is my second favorite Mel Brooks movie that there is out there. And, but I was not at the age where I should be watching that. And there's a lot of people that probably have watched it at the age that uh, they shouldn't have watched it either, but fucking loved it. Which is great, because it is a fantastic movie. And you know what? Gene Wilder is fucking amazing in that movie. Uh, it's just one of those films where it's like, okay, what can I show him? So we decided, well, you know, he's grown up watching Dracula and Frankenstein, the creature, werewolf, you know, all those old universal monster films. And he likes Mel Brooks, young Frankenstein's where it's at. That's, this is my dad's favorite Mel Brooks movie is young Frankenstein. And I know why, but to me as a kid, I didn't like it at all. I was like, why is this in black and white? Like, I could watch the Universal Horror movies because I knew they were old. But this was a Mel Brooks movie. This is the guy that was yogurt, man. Like, that was so, like, ridiculously corny but funny and silly. And here's this. And you're like, what the fuck? What am I watching? Why? I don't want to watch something that's in black and white. Unless it's something that my grandfather shows me. Because he's old and that's what he watches. He watches nothing but black and white movies. So when I'm there, that's what we're watching. Why do I have to watch this in my own goddamn house? And I really didn't have an understanding and a love and care for this film. Until I saw it much later in life. And coming back to this film. And it has been a while. It's been a good maybe 10 years since I've seen this movie. And there was, uh, I think a couple years ago, it came back to theaters. I want to say maybe three or four. And Pat, he's like, we should go. And I was like, okay, yeah, we should go. And then I didn't go. Uh, so 
I really missed out on a chance of seeing it, it, you know, on the big screen, which I really should have. I should not have missed that chance, but I did. And hopefully I'll have the capability to see it again. And if it does, I'm making sure that I'm going no matter what, because I have a better understanding. And this film is actually a really good film, not just because it's a comedic film and it fills this, like, theme that I'm kind of throwing out there to look at two, like, two generations of horror comedies, but it fills this, like, continuation of the whole universal monster theme that we've got going on between the other podcasts. And with last week being, you know, The Creature Walks Among Us, why not look at a film like Young Frankenstein here that has this love and craft of those old 1930s universal horror films? and you know happens to be a little bit it's not like terribly modern and you know it's 1970 fucking four what the hell am i gonna do you know it's still quite a years off from being a modern horror film but it's still 44 years past the original universal monster starts so here it is this movie is a straight up parody this movie if it wasn't a comedy could fall within the I think those universal horror films. I mean, it even goes to the extent where Mel Brooks, he managed to, you know, get a lot of the lab equipment that came directly from uh, Kenneth Strickfadden, who was the creator of a lot of the props on the original Frankenstein. So everything that you see when you go into the lab and you see the Frankenstein moments or, or the creature or the monster moments, it's all the original props that were used in the original film. Now, this film, like I said, came out in 1974 and only had a budget of $2.78 million. 74, that's probably pretty a lot. I would probably equate that to like a $20 million budget. And the box office for the movie was $86.2 million, which is a certified hit. Now, even Mel Brooks, he says himself that this is one of his favorite films, but it's not necessarily his most funny film. He believes that he's got funnier films than this. This was truly crafted with love and care of those old Universal films, and it definitely shows as you're watching the movie. So you have these wonderful sets, and, and not only that, like he did it even with the title cards and the way they did the title credits. They're like the original films. You basically, when you went and saw an old movie, right, you would see the title, like, credit sequence in the beginning, and everybody, and I actually prefer this, like, way better, um, but you see everything, and, and everybody that's involved with it, and then it goes in the movie. So you get that, like, you know, five to ten minute set of credit roll that normally happens at the end of the movie, well, unless you're going to see some, like, fucking special effects extravaganzas, uh, then you're sitting through 20 minutes of fucking credits, but that's for another rant for another fucking time. But... You, you just basically see everybody that's involved with the film, then the movie starts, and then at the end, you've got a small credit sequence, and that's it. You're done. No problem. If there's anything at the end, you get to see it right away. And the film itself is also shot completely in black and white. I know I had my little rant earlier, and you could probably kind of guessed that already, but yes, for 1974, when majority of things were always being filmed in color, this was a big like jump away to go back and when we played the trailer last week at the end of last week's episode it even says shot in black and white sorry like he knew that that was going to evoke some things in some people and they're going to be like why am i going to see a black and white picture 
like nowadays, but he wanted to keep the authentic nature of the original films and to keep it as close of a universal horror movie parody that it could possibly be, which was a bold decision, and I actually really love. And now, the film itself, uh, it stars, you know, besides Gene Wilder, you have Peter Boyle, who plays the creature, You've got Terry Garr, Cloris Leachman, Marty Feldman, Madeline Kahn, Kenneth Mars, Richard Hayden, and even Gene Hackman is in this movie. And I didn't realize that, because you don't fucking, like, you look and you're like, Gene Hackman? What the fuck? I mean, the character that you see him play, it's, you know, one, he's just so young. I think that's the thing that really got me. And when I was watching the credits for the third fucking time, it was, like, really... I saw it and I was like, wait, that's who he plays? So I don't want to give it away right now, but if you know the film, it's a very, it's one of the funnier moments in the film, uh, and it's one of the moments that they do put into the trailer of the film as well. So it, it's got a really good cast and a really big comedic cast for the time, uh, but is it truly like laugh out loud, gut bustingly funny? It has moments, yes. But in general, I feel, again, I keep coming back to this, but I feel like I'm watching a universal horror film instead. Yes, is there overacting? Of course. That's just the way that this is going to work. But I think these are all choices to basically embellish those same things. And yes, there's corny stuff. Yes, there's cheesy stuff. But all in all, you know, it's a film that I'm going to say right now, if you have not seen this film, please stop the podcast and watch it. Like, if you have seen this film, it's great. And the reason why, and and the biggest one besides I want everybody to see this film because I feel it's one of those films that everybody should see, a lot of the comedic stuff actually comes from visual humor. So there are going to be some things and some things that you see or something that you hear in this podcast. It's not going to make much sense if you've never seen the film. Uh, it's going to be really odd, and then you're going to be like, I don't know why that's funny, or why he finds that funny, or why he pulled the clip. It's hard. There's actually one whole sequence I omitted. I was going to do it, and I'm like, because the scene is good, and there's really good timing in the scene, but because a majority of it is visual, it makes no sense. Also, with some of the clips, I've shortened them a little bit, so I've cut a lot of dead air out, and there's going to be times where things like sound a little funny, and that's just because um, trying to cut everything and make it flow, it didn't always work as well as I wanted it to. So if you hear a weird skip or jump, uh, it's because uh, I cut a little bit out and it didn't quite mesh up as well as I wanted to. So I tried multiple times, but it, it still works. You still get the majority of the scene, but I do you know, want to warn everybody. And there are some really long ones in this one because... You know, but you have to imagine something that maybe, I think the longest one is this one's like three minutes and something. Uh, That was like a five minute clip. So there's a lot of one dead air that got taken out that was for those comedic timing, those physical jokes. Like there's one that you hear towards the beginning before we get it where he says, walk this way. And I'm still laughing thinking about it. Uh, Marty Feldman, who plays Igor. Uh, he walks down the steps with this cane and he tells him to do that. And then he hands up the cane for Gene Wilder to walk down the stairs. Uh, and he does. And then he looks back at the camera. And he's like, why the fuck am I doing this? There's a lot of breaking the fourth wall in this movie as well, where it's like, 
nods and winks to the audience or when things happen like everybody slowly pans and looks out into the audience like it happens out there which are great but they're hard to do in an audio medium versus a visual medium so uh make sure that you see the film um you know if you want to go through no all the power to you um it's not like one of the other films where it's like oh yeah should you see it yeah you should see it you know at the end of it blah blah i really want to tell you up front you should see the movie um if you haven't seen the movie if you had seen the movie you'll be good with it if you're really familiar with the movie i think that you'll you know be right where you're at but again you might notice some things are a little off so how about without further ado let's just go ahead and jump into the movie and the first thing that you see you know, besides the credits, is we see the home of Dr. Victor von Frankenstein. And we see that they, as we go into the home, there's a casket. And, and he does this really nice pan around the casket. It's very slow. It's kind of foreboding to where he opens it. And it's kind of a scare that you've got there. And you see the body of the Baron lying inside of the casket. And so a hand comes in and tries to take the box from his hands but the Baron's not having it, and he pulls it back. Yes, as strong as a skeleton is, he manages to keep his grip on his, like, you know, property that he has there. The hands go and try to rip it again, can't get it, and finally they're able to get it out of his cold, deaded hands. And then we fade over, and now we're here in the U.S., and this is where we get the first meeting of Dr. Frederick von Frankenstein, as he likes to be called. We look at the base of a brain which has just been removed from the skull. There's very little of the midbrain that we can actually see. Yet, as I demonstrated in my lecture last week, if the under aspects of the temporal lobes are gently pulled apart, the upper portion of the stem of the brain can be seen. The so-called brain stem consists of the midbrain, a rounded protrusion called the pons, and a stalk tapering downwards called the medulla oblongata, which passes out of the skull through the foramen magnum and becomes, of course, the spinal cord. Are there any questions before we proceed? I have one question, Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. I beg your pardon? My name, it's pronounced Frankenstein. But aren't you the grandson of the famous Dr. Victor Frankenstein who went into graveyards, dug up freshly buried corpses, and transformed dead components into... Yes, yes, yes. We all know what he did. <laughs> but I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science and not because of my accidental relationship to a famous... <laughs> so right away we can see frederick here he wants to distance himself from his grandfather because as you see with this okay who is this motherfucker right here that decides that he's just gonna go ahead and start talking shit about his grandfather while he's giving a lecture to a whole class of students yes you may be really interested in what your grandfather or what his grandfather did i should say but at the same time like dude he's giving a lecture 
Like, how do you know that he even thinks the same way that anything else goes on? You're just going to fucking raise your hand up and then begin the very first question. Rather than the subject on fucking hand, you're going to start talking about some wacko's fucking grandfather. Like, you know, if somebody came up to me and knew my grandfather and was like to me, Hey, you know, that comic book loving guy, you know, the guy that would store them all the time, that would keep them all over the place and had them in the thing. Where here I'm talking about, you know, whatever the hell I'm talking about. I could be talking about fucking cat cleaner or something like that. And I'm trying to give a sales pitch and they start talking about fucking comic books. I'd be upset too. But of course, if my grandfather was a fucking like serial killer and the first thing that they're like, hey, you know, how grandfather went over there and he fucking raped all those people and then sliced off their heads and threw it down in a gutter. Yeah. Um, tell me more about your cat cleaner. I'd be like, who the fuck is this guy? And that's kind of the facial expression that you get and everything from him because you're not really looking at Gene's face here. And I'm probably going to refer to, you know, Frankenstein is Gene, Gene Wilder. I'm going to be super cash because, you know, we were like buddies in a past life or some shit like that. Rest in peace, Mr. Wilder. But it's just easier for me to talk about him this way because it's hard for me to see him other than who he is because every role was really like him in the way that he did it. And this one is, I would say, is, you know, second most famous role to, you know, Sherlock's younger brother. I mean, everybody knows him for that fucking role. Yeah, okay, Willy Wonka. That's really the truth, okay? Before I start getting hate mails about Sherlock's younger brother. But it's one of those things where it's just easy to call him Gene uh, in terms of this movie. So uh, Gene over here, when we pan up to him, we see him from behind the entire time until he gets that question and that's where he turns around and he just has like this death stare on his face and again i don't fucking blame him because i would want to be talking about the work i'm doing not about the work that my grandfather did so the question that comes out of this whole conversation is about voluntary and reflexive movements of the body so that your nerves you know basically he brings out a patient and he kind of explains you know, how these things work. And he talks about voluntary movement as something that you do, right? So you bend a finger, you bend a knee, you kick somebody, you throw some motherfucker in a lake, something like that. That's voluntary. Where involuntary is like when somebody's coming at you and you defend, um, you know, or the, the ball's coming at you and you catch it because it's, it's almost like, maybe that's not the best example, but it's anything that is reactionary, that you don't think about you just kind of do you know it's like a dad when his kid is falling down he becomes fucking superman and is able to dive over fucking like 30 feet to catch them to get it without thinking about himself that's kind of what we're talking about here so he brings out some guy on a stretcher and has him hop off which he really doesn't it's very awkward and really funny when he does get off of it and you look over he's like nice hop uh, and so he has him explain exactly the difference between the two types and then how you can actually restrict it by kneeing the guy in the dick. Mr. Hilltop, would you raise your left knee, please? You have just witnessed a voluntary nerve impulse. It begins as a stimulus from the cerebral cortex passes through the brainstem and to the particular muscles involved. Mr. Hilltop, you may lower your knee. 
Reflex movements are those which are made independently of the will, but are carried out along pathways which pass between the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. You filthy, rotten, yellow son of a bitch! <gasps> we are not aware of these impulses. Neither do we intend them to carry out our contraction of muscles. Yet, as you can see, they work by themselves. But what if we block the nerve impulse by simply applying local pressure, which can be done with any ordinary metal clamp, just at the swelling on the posterior nerve roots for, oh, say, five or six seconds. Why, you mother-grabbing bastard! As you can see, all communication is shut off. <laughs> In spite of our mechanical magnificence, if it were not for this continuous stream of motor impulses, we would collapse like a bunch of broccoli. So the guy gets punched in the dick, and then when he's on the damn stretcher, they basically tell him, like, Gene leans over to one of the guys, he's like, give him an extra dollar. Like, this is not what I paid for, right? I paid to be an example in your fucking lecture, not to get kneed in the fucking dick. You don't do that to anybody. There's a couple things you don't do to people in the dick, okay? You don't knee him in the dick, you don't knife him in the dick, you don't shoot him in the dick. Those are the main three things that you don't do to somebody in the dick. If there's more stuff that you should not do to people in the dick, please let me know because I'm really starting to run a list with these movies. I mean, besides this and then, you know, with the John Wick thing with the dogs biting him in the dick, okay, you don't let your dogs bite somebody in the dick either. So there's four things that people do that I've seen in these fucking movies that people do that you should not do to people. What the hell is wrong with you? So he continues his lecture a little further. The class is very excited. And then there's one last little question. And I do want to say about this movie is that the language relatively, there are two times where there are curse words that are being said. And I, I really actually kind of find it refreshing because that does make this movie very family friendly. And it's the fact that these are the only two times that you hear bitch. And then you hear something towards the end of the movie that I don't want to spoil or ruin because I have it on a clip. Uh, but so the same, like he asked the class, Hey, does anybody else have anything else to ask me? And the same student asked again about his goddamn grandfather. Once a nerve fiber is severed, there is no way in heaven or on earth to regenerate life back into it. Are there any last questions before we leave? Uh, Dr. Frank... Frankenstein. Yes? Isn't it true that Darwin preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass case until by some extraordinary means it actually began to move with a voluntary motion? Are you speaking of the worm or the spaghetti? Why, the worm, sir. Yes, it seems to me I did read something of that incident when I was a student. But you have to remember that a worm, with very few exceptions, is not a human being. <laughs> but wasn't that the whole basis of your grandfather's work, sir? The reanimation of dead tissue? My grandfather was a very sick man. But as a Frankenstein, 
Aren't you the least bit curious about it? Doesn't the bringing back to life what was once dead hold any intrigue for you? You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. Dead is dead. But look at what has been done with hearts and kidneys. Hearts and kidneys are tinker toys. I'm talking about the central nervous system. But, sir, I am a scientist, not a philosopher. You have more chance of reanimating this scalpel than you have of mending a broken nervous system. But what about your grandfather's work, sir? My grandfather's work was doo-doo. I am not interested in death. The only thing that concerns me is the preservation of life. Okay, so the use of doo-doo here is really fucking ridiculously funny to me. And it's probably because it's very unexpected. Especially since he's getting into his, like... And you notice this throughout the whole goddamn movie. That he has, like, two volumes of speaking. He has his normal voice and his fucking screaming voice! Those are the only volumes that he really carries throughout the film to be the eccentric mad scientist that, of course, you know, he's probably going to become. But it's just, like, so funny to hear somebody yell doo-doo. And I failed to mention earlier that sitting in the audience is the guy from the beginning of the movie that ripped the box out of Baron Von Frankenstein's cold, dead hands in the beginning of the film. And when he yells that, that's when he's like, Oh, hey, I, you know, I don't necessarily know why he's doing this. And of course you hear that audible <gasps> from the rest of the audience because he's really trying to separate himself from that whole legacy. Yeah, I'm related to him, but you know what? I'm not him and I'm thinking of something completely different and everything that he fucking did, I don't agree with. And when he says that and everybody gasps and he... <laughs> <laughs> he does this again this is one of those visual things but he stabs himself with a scalpel right in the leg and then like he's looking down it's like oh shit that fucking hurts and he's looking at the room and he's like okay class dismissed and he moves like a book in front of it so he can pull the scalpel out of his leg and that's when he's approached by the guy and he tells him about the will and that there's something that's been left for him which happens to be in I think like it's never truly really clear if it's just like the 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 work and the research or it's the whole damn castle that's left for him but he has to go to Transylvania and he has to basically claim what was left for him after Baron von Frankenstein's death has happened so uh, he gets ready to go and that's where we meet his fiance for the very first time played by the very funny, very annoying Madeline Kahn, and we find out that his fiancée is, well, kind of a bitch. Oh, my sweet darling. Oh, my dearest love. I'll count the hours that you're away. Oh, darling, so will I. Not on the lips. What? I'm going to that party at Nana and Nikki's later. I don't want to smear my lipstick. Oh. You understand. Of course. All aboard! Oh, dear. Well, I guess this is it. Freddy, darling. Well, how can I say in a few minutes what it's taken me a lifetime to understand? Won't you try? All right. You've got it, mister. I'm yours, all of me. What else can I say? My sweet love. The hair, the hair. Just been said. Sorry, sorry. I hope you like old-fashioned weddings. I prefer old-fashioned wedding nights. <laughs> You're incorrigible. Does that mean 
You love me? You bet your boots it does. Oh, my only love. Taffeta, darling. Taffeta, sweetheart? No, the dress is taffeta. It wrinkles so easily. Oh. All aboard! Oh, there's that horrid man again. Well, hurry now, before I make a fool of myself. Ah, oh, the nails! Oh. So you can't touch fucking shit on this lady, you can't give it her fucking kiss, you can't, you know, hold her hands because of her fucking nails, can't give her a fucking hug because the dress is all taffeta, ooh, whatever the fuck taffeta is, wrinkles, oh well, like, you're not gonna see him for how long are you gonna fucking not see him for? Who the fuck knows, because I don't know about the time frame of this movie, months, weeks, years, fuck if I know, but it's like... Come on, like, are you really going to do this? And he's like, he's such a fucking horn dog at the same time because he's only interested in the wedding night. Probably because she's that type of person that was like, especially, you know, in that day and age where you get married and that's when you finally do things. And he's just been so fucking raring to go. And he's just like, I need to get in there. I need to get what fucking wet. But she's just like, no. And he can't even give her a fucking kiss. The way they say goodbye is like rubbing elbows against each other. They both fucking make chicken wings and fucking flap them up, up inside down. And it's so fucking ridiculous that she's more worried about everything else and the way that she's going to look later on tonight versus the way that, you know, like, he's expressing to her right now. And because she calls him incorrigible and the fact that he's all excited for the, like, wedding night, oh, that's the reason why you love me. Um, I feel like there's something else that's kind of going on between them in that she sees it more as like a societal thing because it's obviously put out there, especially later on in the movie, that she comes from wealth. He's very knowledgeable and, you know, he's a professor, well-known, he's out there, he's got this lineage, and now he's going to go possibly get a fucking castle. So why not, you know, this is the reason maybe she's with him. We don't really know but it's kind of what we, you know, she's high society, high look. Everything about her is more important than the actual relationship. But he believes that it's all love. Oh, yes, I love you uh, because, you know, you're so incorrigible and insatiable, I guess, whatever's going on. So he goes and boards the train. There is something I do want to say before he boards the train. And I didn't talk about a second. It was the worm statement in the whole wall. There's a lot of differences in between, or there's minor differences in between a worm and a human being. And I've really spent some time thinking about that. And I, I don't know. What are the minor differences between a worm and a human? Like, how close are we? Other than we all both have some type of like central nervous system that, you know, if somebody puts us in a jar, maybe we don't survive, but the worm does. But then... I, fuck, if you guys have an idea, please let me know what the minor differences between us are. We, we both like to play in the dirt, I guess. You know, we both like to bury ourselves later on. Um, we split from ourselves and create new selves. I, I don't fucking know. I'm, maybe that toe that I have in the other room is going to eventually become another toe. Huh. It's a possibility. But... Anyway, so he goes and boards the train, and I took down this clip. Uh, it's very, very subtle, but I find this very, very funny. And let's play the clip, and then we'll come back to it. Hi, 
Harry. He was at it again. So what do you want me to do about it? Every day. Let him, let him. New York next. Everybody out for New York? Franz, er macht es schon wieder. Na, was soll ich denn da machen? Aber jeden Tag. Du lass ihn, lass ihn. Transylvania nächste. Jeder aussteigen für Transylvania. Transylvania nächste. Jeder aussteigen für Transylvania. So what's really funny about the scene in general is that like this is the traveling scene from him over there going to New York to where he's going to take the boat and he's going to go to Transylvania and then he arrives and takes the train over to Transylvania and he arrives there. What's funny about it to me is one, it's again, it's visual. It's that it's the same fucking scene. Like everything's the same. He's sitting in the same goddamn seat. He's looking out the same window, reading the same basic paper. And the actors in the cart are exactly the same. Like everybody is the same. Even the dialogue is exactly the same, except it's in German. And if you know any German, and that's actually relatively easy German, she's saying the same thing and her husband is saying the exact same thing back to him that he's doing this every day and just let him just let him and then when the conductor comes it's also the same at the end basically saying that we're going to be in transylvania rather than we're going to be in new york and it's ridiculously funny like it's very 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 subtle but i find it really really funny to like see it and just the way it was done and I had to actually rewind the scene a couple of times just to make sure that everything was basically set up. It's just like, here's the budget. We don't have the budget to show him going through next transition. We're just going to do these like that weird like screen spin type of wipe. Oh, this is the passage of time and then we're in the same fucking train car and here's the same fucking situation happening once again. I should also say that like, the wipes in this film also are all of the old style wipes from the 30s. So there's a lot of circular wipes and, and fades and stuff like that that make you feel like you're watching the film. Even the orchestral score is done in that style. He specifically got his composer to go through and make music that was very similar to those films. So when you're listening to the music, even though some of it's kind of upbeat, maybe it doesn't necessarily belong inside of a horror movie, it is very similar to that time specifically. So like he really did think of almost everything to make this almost a perfect parody of those old monster films. So once he's arrived in Transylvania, he reaches his head out the window like it's fucking Christmas Day and he's just been visited by those three asshole fucking ghosts, especially the ghost of Christmas past. She's a fucking bitch. All she does is fucking kick you around, hits you in the head with her fucking little like wand thing and talks with a really fucking high pitched voice. Pisses me off every time she shows up. I've seen you the last five fucking years. I've learned my fucking lesson. Just leave me the fuck alone. What more do you want with me? Oh, you know, that, that one time I had that at fucking TV studio, man. It fucking pisses me off. I got rid of it. I did everything that was right. I made it with the right people. Just leave me the fuck alone. Get me off your fucking schedule. Oh, but anyway, so he leans out and he asks a little boy on the fucking train tracks, are we in Transylvania? Even though the conductor or the car guy or whatever you want to call him, the usher, you know, train dude, 
train dude said, we're in Transylvania, which I think you could fucking understand, right? Just because they're speaking German behind you doesn't mean you can't understand what the fuck they're saying. So he asked the kid, are we in Transylvania? And he says, yes, we're here on platform 39. So he gets off the train. And as he's standing there and he's waiting for somebody to come up, because somebody was supposed to come and meet him and take him over to the castle, uh, he hears a type of, like, weird dragging footstep in the distance. And this is where we're going to meet Igor for the very first time, as well as Inga. So it's a little bit of a longer clip for an introduction, but instead of breaking up into two very small clips, I felt like just putting together. Plus, I enjoy both meetings very much. Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Froderick? No, Frederick. Well, why isn't it Froderick Frankenstein? It isn't, it's Frederick Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced... Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? Uh, you were sent by Herr Falkstein, weren't you? Yes. My grandfather used to work for your grandfather. <laughs> How nice. Of course, the rates have gone up. Of course. Of course. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh! Sorry, I... Uh... You know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I could help you with that hump. What hump? Let's go. Allow me, master. Oh, thanks very much. Walk this way. This way. comfortable in the rear. Oh. Oof. What was that? Oh, that'll be Inga. Herr Falkstein thought you might need a laboratory assistant temporarily. Oh. Oof. Hello. Would you like to have a roll in the hay? It's fun. Roll, roll, roll in the hay. So, Marty Feldman plays Igor, and he has, it's, it's terrible to say he has the perfect face to play him. You know, he's always been kind of an awkward guy, and he really does look like that. He doesn't put on any type of makeup. I'm not necessarily the hump. There's also a joke with the hump that constantly happens. It switches sides throughout the movie, and it's kind of like these weird continuity errors that they just left in, and they left them in specifically to make the joke. Uh, but... You know, <laughs> it's terrible to say this way, but his face really does look like that. But the dude is fucking hilarious. If you've ever seen any of his specials from back in the day, I suggest you go look at them. Uh, and then Terry Gar plays Inga. And she's absolutely stunning in this movie. And she's pretty goddamn hilarious. 
that is probably one of my favorite intros because, you know, they're not outright saying what she's saying. A roll in the hay, of course, means that you're going to have fun times. Uh, but she literally rolls in the hay while singing the song. And both of them look at the screen at the same time. And that's why I mean with, like, there's a lot of, like, breaking the fourth wall. Like, do you get it? Do you get it? And maybe to some it's kind of cheesy. I find it really, really funny. So... They travel along the road now that we've left. There's also the scene there where he's walking down the stairs that I spoke about earlier. Uh, that, again, when Gene looks at the screen, it's really goddamn funny. Like, it's <laughs> can you believe this shit? Why the fuck am I doing this? So they go ahead and start heading towards the castle. And there's another really... And this is just... I'm putting this in there because it's a great play on words... And it's ridiculous, and it gives you a better insight into Igor's character and Marty Feldman's delivery of his lines. Werewolf. Werewolf? There. What? Werewolf. There. Castle. Why are you talking that way? I thought you wanted to. No, I don't want to. Suit yourself. I'm easy. Well, there it is. Home. So it's just a like minor play on words because she's like, here's the wolf. And of course, we're in Transylvania, so we're expecting there to be other monsters possibly out there, especially for this time, you know, in what he's trying to go with the film. And so when she says werewolf and he asks the question like werewolf, you get that there. And there's like, what? What the fuck are you talking about? Like he's actually asking about the damn werewolf and he's taking it more literally like, where's the wolf? Oh, it's over there. There's the wolf. There's the castle. It's really cheesy, but to me, it's really goddamn funny. So they roll up to the castle and they get ready to get off. They go up to the door. And this is where we first meet Frau Blucher. Um, I'm hoping I'm saying that right. Because it sounds like Butcher in the film. But there's a running gag with her name that I'll talk about afterwards. Once you've heard the introduction to the Frau. Played by Cloris Leachman. I am Frau Blucher. <laughs> Steady! Uh, how do you do? I am Dr. Frankenstein. This is my assistant, Inga. May I present Frau Blucher? <laughs> what's got into them? Your rooms have been prepared, Herr Doctor. If you will follow me. Igor, uh, would you bring the bags as soon as you're finished, please? Yes, Master. After you. So, yes, every time her name is said, like, lightning strikes and the horses go crazy. Now, there's a lot of things that are out there on the internet, and there's only one real reason that you're hearing this sound. So the one thing that a lot of people have said, and I believe for the longest time, is that Blucher is close to glue in German. And so the horses are getting afraid because they're saying the words glue. 
But that's not the case. There actually isn't any words out there that match it. It's not exactly the same. So the real reason why is because Mel Brooks, he wanted her to be like the bad guy. And there was an obvious bad guy type of like, you know, uh, cues that you'd see out there. So when her name is first, like, first said, that's why you hear the lightning and the thunder and the horses go crazy. But then every time, it's just to emphasize the point that she's the villain of the, the quote-unquote villain of the film or is meant to be, like, not trusted. Even though it's just mostly for fun and games rather than it being specific to that her name sounds a certain way or anything like that. So she invites them inside the, the castle and she takes everybody up to the rooms for the night. There's a really weird continuity error that happens in this scene. It's very, very obvious, and I think that it was just kind of done this way, because I don't think anything in this film, in the way that it's shot, or the scenes that are done, you know, some of it could be because, you know, budget reasons. I think other, like, things that they do is to really, truly mimic these times, because there wasn't the, the editing that you see today, so there's a lot of weird continuity editors that can exist within the scenes when they reshoot a scene right something's off something's on they're not wearing this specific piece of clothing they've lost the you know one scene the guy had the air thing in his mouth and the next scene that he doesn't but it's all within the same sequence and then he's got it back on again so while Frau Blucher is busy like taking him up the stairs she has these candles that she lights to take him up there and then in the next scene they're completely out then in the next scene, they're completely all lit. Then in the next scene, they're completely out to the point when they get back and she takes Jean to his room for the night. They're completely out once again, but she acts like they're completely on. It's really ridiculous. It's really funny. Uh, and I think that it was done completely on purpose. So she's now leaving him in the room for the night. And so she explains exactly what the collection that is in this room to Jean. This is your room. It was your grandfather Victor's room. I see. Well, seem to be quite a few books. This was Victor's, the Baron's medical library. And where is my grandfather's private library? I don't know what you mean, sir. Well, these books are all very general. Any doctor might have them in his study. This is the only library I know of, Dr. Frankenstein. 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 Well, we'll see. Good night. Would the doctor care for a brandy before retiring? No. Thank you. Some warm milk, perhaps? No, thank you very much. No thanks. Oh, Valtine. Nothing. Thank you. I'm a little tired. And I will say good night. Good night. It's quite ridiculous, and it's obvious that she's trying to get something more out of him because she's asking if he wants to have a little more. Like, there's something very odd and awkward about her. Like, she asks him if he wants more brandy or if he wants some warm milk to help him sleep or some Ovaltine. Now, Ovaltine is obviously something that was not available at the time, but it's just ridiculous that she's constantly going down this list of stuff like basically to maybe spend more time with him 
and it gets kind of more obvious what her intentions were because as he puts his stuff down on the counter and he starts trying to put his clothes away from his suitcase there's a little like makeup mirror that's sitting right there that's perfectly facing like the picture of the baron that was up on the wall and you can see her and she's like talking and whispering to it and she goes up and leans it and actually gives the painting a kiss and that's right when Gene, he looks in the mirror and he sees that happen. He's just kind of like, what the fuck is going on? And then she says goodnight to the painting and she leaves with, of course, the candle being completely like <laughs> turned off at this point or not lit, I guess you should say. Uh, so he goes to sleep and then he begins to have a nightmare. Now, this is a long sequence of things, but this is them actually going we're going to start from the nightmare sequence and then we're going to go into inga and gene here they're going to find the laboratory that's downstairs well they're going to find the passage to the laboratory and we'll talk a little bit about it when we get back i'm not a frankenstein i am not a frankenstein i'm a frankenstein don't give me that I don't believe in fate, and I won't say it. All right, you win, you win, I give. I'll say it, I'll say it, I'll say it. Destiny, destiny, no escaping that for me. Destiny, destiny, no escaping that for me. Destiny, destiny, no escaping. Dr. Frankenstein. Wake up! What is it? You were having a nocturne. What's that strange music? I have no idea. But it seems to be coming from behind the bookcase. Behind the bookcase? Hand me that robe, would you, dear? You were right. It's coming from behind this wall. Where is it? Where is it? What? There's always a device. If I can just spot the triggering mechanism. Hello? It seems louder over here. Hand me that candle, will you? Put the candle back. Figure it out now. Take out the candle and I'll block the bookcase with my body. Now listen to me very carefully. Don't put the candle back. With all of your might, shove against the other side of the bookcase. Is that perfectly clear? I think so. Good girl. Put the candles back. Oh, look, Doctor. A passageway. Whatever that music is, it's coming from down there. I'd better take a look. Oh, let me come with you, doctor, please. 
I don't want to stay up here alone. All right, then. Close your robe and follow me. Oh, doctor, it's a candle. Good thinking. So the very first thing that I want to try to understand about the scene is how did she hear him from, like, so far away? I don't know where everybody's situated in this castle, but I'm pretty sure that she's not right next door, right? She is, like, it's weird because as he's having that nightmare and he's talking about destiny and that he's going to give it a destiny where we see kind of the beginning of the second act of this movie and... He's, of course, he's screaming it really loud, and he's kind of like, it's like a temper tantrum that he's having there. Like, he's fought it for so long, and finally he's just going to give in to it, though he really doesn't want to. He's just there, because he's now in this castle, he now has inherited this estate, and he's just kind of stuck, and he's always going to be Frankenstein, not Frankenstein, like he wants to be called. And so he's having this, and there's this really, like, creepy shadow that comes over and is hanging over the bed, and it turns out to be Inga rather than be Frau Blucher. Like, that's who originally I thought it would be, but it turns out that it's her instead. And it's weird that she would be the one that comes in right away, but she comes and comforts him, and then... The whole time as he's having these nightmares, the music is playing. And I really felt like the music was just a part of the soundtrack. Like, it's that section, you know, he's having the nightmares, so the the music is going along with it. But then the characters themselves are like, wait, where is that music coming from? So it's like, wait, the music is not a part of the soundtrack? The music is actually something that's being played that the characters can actually hear and they know about? Like, it makes you wonder, does that have any connection to what's going on with him? Which, you know, I don't want to spoil anything right now, but think about it. <laughs> and so, it's it's kind of an interesting situation that you've got going on here. You've got this music that is blaring loudly. Um, it's loud enough for the audience to hear, but to them, it's supposedly really quiet. And it is rather subtle as well. That's why you kind of think it's just kind of background noise to go along with whatever the scene is. And that's where they go and they find the like secret entrance in the bookcase. And the first thing that he does is he's like, okay, it's around here, it's around here. And he grabs a white book because it's very obvious that that's the only miscolored book on the whole bookshelf. So, of course, what do you think? Oh, that's the one. That's where you hear the, ha! Like, he grabs it and nothing happens with it. And when they go to grab the candle, that's when the whole bookcase moves around. And it's, it is a relatively funny scene because it's definitely like the film itself is sped up uh, to do the, the turning of the whole thing to make it look like it's a lot faster than it actually is. And when he gets pushed behind and he gets pushed in front of it and he uses his body to block the way and gets crushed. I mean, any man that would do that, if it was really moving that fast, you'd have a broken rib or two. But no, he's just got a high-pitched voice because he's slowly getting the breath squeezed out of him while she's just standing there listening to his instructions. He's probably dying from the inside. So they do manage to get everything around and they manage to go like along the path and downstairs. Of course, for some reason, she gets like sucked into the wall for some reason when she puts the candle back or when she pushes the whole thing. Um, it spins around again and she's stuck on the other side, yet he's able to get out perfectly. And then when, when he does spin it, and to get it to the halfway point, he puts the candle in, raises it out, and puts it back in again, which magically stops it at the point that they need to get through the wall, which is 
pretty ridiculous in itself. So they go downstairs and they find that there's all these creepy things laying everywhere. They're looking around and you see a set of heads on the shelf and they all have different points of how long they've been dead for. And so they're looking and they're looking at each head and they get a surprise with the last one. Hi! Ain't got nobody and nobody cares for I mean Igor, Frederick, how did you get here? Through the dumbwaiter. I heard the strangest music from the upstairs kitchen and I just followed it down. Call it a hunch. There must have been someone else down here, then. It would seem that way. And there's the only other door. Wait, master. It might be dangerous. You go first. Aren't there any lights in this place? Two nasty-looking switches over here, but I'm not going to be the first. Damn your eyes! Too late. So this is where it all happened. Just think, a dead brain, ready to live again in a new body. Look, no blood, no decomposition, just a few sutures. Throw the main switch. Yeah, A filthy mess. I don't know. A little paint, a few flowers, a couple of throw pillows. Well, it seems as if our mysterious violinist has disappeared. She's a what? So there's some really subtle and funny things that go on in this scene. The first one, of course, the most obvious is when Igor does the scare right there and he starts thinking, I ain't got no body because he's just the head looking through. It's really, really like, it's silly and it's funny just because of the way the face is. Now, there's a bunch of like subtle things because he goes, Igor, and then he goes, Froderick, <laughs> like he did when you first saw him in the beginning of the movie. Um, and it's just, it's really subtle and it's really quick. Uh, you get the other one too where he's like damn your eyes he's like oh it's already happened and he looks and he winks into the camera because you know marty feldman's got a fucked up face that's it's terrible to say but honestly he does so it's like those little like subtle things are extremely funny to me and then you have the at the end he's like look like she's dis and then Inga's like, what? And he's all, peer, disappear. Like, it's, it's so ridiculous and it's so subtly funny that I absolutely love it and I eat it up. Um, you know, again, the obvious thing where they look downstairs and you see everything laid out and you hear the voiceover of the Baron talking about everything that's going on, like, with the experiment that he's doing. And I believe that's Mel Brooks. And... This is one of the few films that Mel Brooks has done where Mel Brooks does not show up in it at all. And I think that's the only time that you even hear his voice, other than the trailer. Like, one of the original trailers for it was like, he's I'm presenting this movie. Uh, but 
it's just odd that he doesn't even have a small, small, small part in this film. And, you know, because I'm used to seeing him in his movies pop up here and there as either a reverent character, uh, a main character, or just a little cameo somewhere in the film. And I think this is his little voiceover cameo. And you hear how grandiose it is in him doing the experiment and how, like... They have everything set, and then the immediate response from Gene here is, man, this place is fucking filthy. Like, it's dirty, and Igor is just, well, you know, a couple throw pillows and everything might look a little better. You know, he's seeing, like, the good and everything, where Gene is extremely pessimistic with anything that has to do with his grandfather. And it just constantly shows until another point in the film. So they see the light from the room and they go down quietly and make sure that they're not heard and they enter the room which happens to be the secret library of the Baron and they notice that there's the violin on the counter as well as some other things in the room. This explains the music. It's still warm. But who was playing it? I don't know. But whoever it was just barely finished putting out his cigar. Such strange goings-on. What is this music room? But there's nothing here but books and papers. Books and papers? It is! This is my grandfather's private library. I feel it! Look! Look at this! from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me a light so brilliant and wondrous and yet so simple change the poles from plus to minus and from minus to plus I alone succeeded in discovering the secret of bestowing life nay even more I myself became capable of bestowing animation Upon lifeless matter! It comes! So they find everything down there, including a lit cigar that somebody has been using to, I guess, enjoy while they're playing the violin while they're down there. Doesn't that seem counterproductive? Like, holding the cigar, you know, I guess you're holding it in your mouth the entire time like you're fucking Darby O'Gill and you're playing for the little people out there and you're just dancing around. But you're not really dancing because you're playing the solemn, sweet sounds of the violin. It's not a nice little fiddle or anything like that. Uh, It just doesn't make much sense to me, like, this is how you pass your time. I'm going to play slow music and smoke a cigar at the same time. I don't know, maybe it's relaxing, maybe it's not. Who am I to fucking judge? But he's got all these books all over the shelves. Like, there's just all the secret books he's got, and the one that's on the counter just happens to read How I Did It. And that, of course, grabs uh, Gene's attention here, and that's what leads him to reading the book in the second part of that clip, where he realizes that the way to animate life is to turn positives into negatives and negatives into positives. Oh, shit! Why didn't I think about that before? Like, 
It's so goddamn simple. It's just a fucking switch of ACDC, right? We're gonna, instead of it being back and black, it's gonna be black and back. Oh my god, it's fucking amazing. I can't believe that this is all we had to do to bring corpses back to life is to alter the way that our nervous system works or that our body works. It's kind of like thinking, um, this is some weird science shit that I'm gonna say right now. But atrial fibrillation, if anybody knows what that is, that's when you get signals going the wrong way. So normally your body works in a clockwork motion and sends electrical signals from the left side of your body to the right and comes around in a clockwork type fashion, right? And when you have AFib, it's actually electrical signals going the opposite way. And there's a way that people have designed to do blockage, blah, 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 to keep your body going the right motion. And basically, the way that I see it is just basically giving a dead body AFib. You send the electrical signals the opposite way and bam, everything's back up and it's fucking working. Man, this if this was the simple fucking solution, you would think that somebody else would have found this out a long fucking time ago. But here is the fucking switch. He's no longer a fucking Frankenstein. He's a fucking Frankenstein at this point. Because he's now all of a sudden like the scientist in him has taken over and he realizes that his grandfather's work wasn't doo-doo. It was the reverse of doo-doo. His grandfather's work was food. It was perfect. It's nourishing. It's going to work for him. Everything's fucking great. Like, <laughs> so he's now obsessed with actually bringing this creature, this monster to life. And he's going to do it. And he's figured out the way exactly what he needs to do to make his creature. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved, therefore, to make the creature of a gigantic stature. Of course. That would simplify everything. In other words, his veins, his feet, his hands, his organs would all have to be increased in size. Exactly. He would have an enormous Schwanstucker. That goes without saying. Oof. He's going to be very popular. So then, what we're aiming for is a being approximately seven feet in height, with all features either congenitally or artificially proportionate in size. Something like this. Hello. You've caught something there. Crude, yes. Primitive, yes. Perhaps even grotesque. Yet something inexplicable tells me that this might be our man. So Igor has drawn exactly what they're going to make. Like he's sitting there and he's sketching out stuff and that's when he turns it around and you hear the music and he's like, oh, like this? And then it's like, perfect. That's the body of the creature that they're going to be making. It's ridiculous. And there, yes, there is a dick joke in there that everything's going to be made bigger, especially his dick. And he's going to be very popular, especially among the ladies. So, well, I, I guess if you're going to make a giant monster, that if you're going to make everything big, you might as well make the dick big too, right? You don't want to give this seven foot monstrosity the smallest dick known to mankind, right? You don't want to, like, give him needle dick. You don't want to give him micro penis. You just want to make sure that he lives happy because you're going to bring this guy back from the dead or, you know, however they're doing it, whether it's going to be a specific person or they're going to mix and match and get everything together. 
But, you know, maybe in that person's past life, they had a tiny wiener and it's just like, hey, you know what? We're giving you an upgrade. So, guys, if you're stuck with a small dick out there, just imagine when you're dead and you're brought back to life, somebody's going to make sure that you're seven foot fucking tall and you got a fucking 16 inch penis, okay? So just wait until you're dead. That's when everything's going to be fixed. So, of course, in the next scene, after they're talking about, like, this is the body that's going to work, somebody, a criminal in town, is killed and is buried. And he happens to be one tall motherfucker, so that's, of course, the body that they're going to be going after. And after the body's been buried, and the, even the, like, the officers or the police of the town, uh, you know, they say, oh, the, well, the grave diggers, actually, I should say that's the people that are actually burying him. They're just like, yeah, he's a criminal. We didn't dig him that deep, but that's not what he deserves. And so they go ahead and they dig out the body and they bring it back to the castle. They do get stopped by a constable in town. And there's a really funny scene where, like, the hand's hanging out and the, the constable's coming by. And then Gene's got to basically act like that's his hand. And Igor is controlling it from inside the coffin or from the other side of the coffin. And it's pretty obvious that they've got a coffin on a cart. And it's more about, like, how oblivious that this constable is the entire time. And he's like, he shakes his hand. Ooh, your hand's really cold. You need to get yourself next to a fire. Or get you something in the bottle, if you know what I mean. No, you don't get yourself something in the fucking bottle. That's going to constrict your blood. You're going to feel warmer, but you're not going to be warmer, okay? It's going to be worse. Those St. Bernards that have that shit on their fucking collar, it's a fucking lie. They're probably going to kill you more than they're going to save you, though it might get the blood flowing a little bit in your system. You can't drink the whole fucking thing. You can't go fucking lush with the St. Bernard. I know, I know, he's like your regular bartender in town. He just wants to make sure you have a good time. In fact, when he comes over with those shades and he's got those party hats and everything, he's like, woo make sure you drink the whole fucking thing. It's like you're at Senior Fucking Frogs and he gets his paws and he starts shaking the bottle and pours it over your head and you have to keep drinking until he says stop. You know, that's why the St. Bernard is the asshole of the dog world. They just want to get you drunk enough so that they can save you and say hey look i found this guy i'm a fucking hero but in actuality they're bringing you closer to death and making you a fucking addict so we need to stop saint bernard's right fucking now anyway so they bring the body back over to the castle and that's when he has this conversation with igor over the brain that he needs to make sure that he gets for him oh what an awesome sight what a profound and reverent night is this. With such a specimen for a body, all we need now is an equally magnificent brain. You know what to do. I have a pretty good idea. Good man. Didn't you... Didn't you used to have that on the other side? What? Your, uh... Oh, never mind. You have that name I gave you? I have it written down. H. Delbrook. Hans Delbrook. So he has to go out and get Hans Delbruck's name, and Hans Delbruck is an actual person, believe it or not. Uh, he's a German historian, he died in 1929, and he was the first uh, modern military historian based on his method of research on critical examination of ancient sources, using auxiliary disciplines like demography and economics to complete analysis and the comparison between epochs to trace the evolution of military institutions. So, 
He's a great mind, and that's the mind that he wants to make sure that he gets. So he sends Igor on his way, and Igor actually is able to get in. And it's funny, it's like a brain drop-off depository. There's literally a sign that says on the door, like, after 5 p.m., please leave the brains in the slot. And so he reaches down the slot, and he's able to unlock the door and go inside. And surprisingly enough, he finds the brain, and he grabs the brain. But he gets scared easily. He drops it and completely kills the brain or destroys the brain i guess you could say and i'm thinking about it in this situation couldn't he have still put it together or do they need a perfectly preserved brain like they got a dead body they're we're gonna reanimate everybody's like corpse and everything like all these pieces together supposedly but yet they need to have a perfectly intact brain why couldn't they just like use part of the killer's brain and part oh no no that's a bad idea. Whenever you use the killer's brain for anything, it's all going to turn out in the worst possible way. So now that he's destroyed the brain, what is Igor going to do? Well, he's going to look at all the other brains that are on the shelves, and he happens to grab the one that says abnormal and brings it back over to Gene. So Gene is now ready to put his whole process to work. He's going to bring the creation to life. He's going to give the monster the energy that it needs to get everything ready and raring to go. So this is a very long scene from the beginning of it, uh, of the whole thing, all the way to the big climactic speech that you expect from him in this film that was in the trailer, of course, parts of it were. So let's see the doctor bring his monster to life. He's hideous. He's beautiful. And he is mine. Hurry now. We're fighting time and the elements. Are you ready? Are you sure this is how they did it? Yes, yes. It's all written down in the notes. Now tie off the kites and hurry down as fast as you can. What's the hurry? There's the possibility of electrocution. Do you understand? I say there's the possibility of electrocution. Do you understand? I understand. I understand. Why are you shouting? Did you... Did you tie off the kites? Of course. Oh. All right, good. Uh, check the generator. Yes, master. Igor, release the safety valve on the main wheel. Yes, master. Can you imagine the brain of Hans Delbruck in this body? Oh, Frederick. This is the moment. Well, dear, are you ready? Yes, doctor. Elevate me. Now? Right here? Yes, yes. Raise the platform. Oh! The platform. Oh, that, yeah, yes. From that fateful day when stinking bits of slime first crawled from the sea and shouted to the cold stars, I am man. Our greatest dread has always been the knowledge of our own mortality. But tonight, we shall hurl the gauntlet of science into the frightful face of death itself. Tonight, 
We shall ascend into the heavens. We shall mock the earthquake. We shall command the thunders and penetrate into the very womb of impervious nature herself. You've got it, master. Get ready. Get set. Go! So everything in this scene really feels like the original Frankenstein scene from the way that the like the atmosphere is to the sounds of thunder outside to the way the machines move and light up and the way that you have the overlays on the screen with the electrical stuff on everybody's faces even the way that he looks and he's kind of dressed which is really weird to be honest he puts these weird goggles on but he's mostly listening for a heartbeat so he has the stethoscope in his hand and he's listening to it but he has to wear these ridiculous like fucking goggles on his face that are obviously something that are needed for like far-sighted searing because his you know eyes are so fucking large inside of the goggles it doesn't make any sense other than to give you a feeling and still be a little more ridiculous because they're much bigger than say the goggles that were worn in the original film or that you kind of think of when you think of mad scientist it's just really fucking an odd fucking choice in fashion is what i'm trying to say but in the beginning it's really funny when igor's up there and he's tying the kite like he's fucking ben franklin or some shit and that's the way they're gonna get it just literally looks like there's a key on the end of the goddamn kite and that's the way and he's like are you sure this is the way that it works well that's what it said that's what you had to do yet there's obviously like electricity in this place but i guess that's the way that you got to make sure that you get the damn thing up to 88 miles an hour so that way the thing can live so it's floating out there and then when they tell him to get down he just randomly shows up that's where they're like oh wait weren't you up there but you're not down here okay and again his hump has moved to the other side like it did in the other screen so he's now got the hump on the right versus the hump being on the left when you're looking at him like when you're facing him and he's facing you so you have that that was just ridiculous and then when he's going through the different switches he's got the regular he's got the second and then the third one's called the works and so that's when he pulls it up and he's giving it the works and everything goes really crazy uh and so you see this and then comes down but the creature has not been given life and of course the good doctor he takes it the best way that he possibly can with style and grace nothing oh doctor i'm sorry no no 
If science teaches us anything, it teaches us to accept our failures as well as our success with quiet, dignity, and grace. Son of a bitch bastard, I'll get you for this! What did you do to me? What did you do to me? Stop it! Stop it! I don't want to live! I do not want to live! Quiet dignity and grace. So these two scenes are classic fucking Wilder. Like the scene before when he's doing the whole thing of giving, give my creation life other than the curious fashion choices that are going on there. It's like perfect. His facial expressions, the way that he's announcing himself. And it's so awkward because like he's doing this grandiose speech to just Igor and Inga. But it's like this epic speech that he's going to give to everybody that that everybody is paying attention to him because he's so important and everything he's doing and this is the greatest thing of his career and all this stuff that he's just so like enamored and he's become the mad scientist and he plays it perfectly not just from the way that he's doing the inflections and the way that he's delivering the lines but his whole body movement and then you get into this scene where he's just like well it you know, it just didn't work, and, uh, you know, and then he gets all crazy, and he's just like, why? And he's, like, beating on his chest, and, and just the way that he does it is, like, that's the comedic timing that he had that's so amazing that he's able to just turn these things on a dime, and here he is being himself and basically beating on the monster because it didn't become to life. You know, he's, <laughs> it's perfect. I love it. It's absolutely hilarious in different ways, and it's truly making the parody work really well for this film. So with the failure of the monster not coming to life, and the doctor, the good doctor over here, completely distraught over the fact that his creation is now a flop, we cut over to a different part of town, and we see that a mob has gathered inside of one of the town halls, and they're discussing the good doctor because they fear what he is. The fact that he is a Frankenstein and that he's going to do something just as bad as the generations before him. And this is where we also get introduced into the good lieutenant, who is the leader of the police force in the city, who happens to be played by Kenneth Mars. Now, you might not remember that name very well, but I'm going to tell you that you do know the voice. Uh, well, a majority of you will know the voice because he voiced Triton in The Little Mermaid, and that's where I recognize him from. And I was like, man, that's really, really familiar. I had to look him up. Boom, there you go. That's my frame of reference, and it might be yours. And he has his... He has two shticks in this whole movie. One which you're going to hear a little bit of, and it's hard because I wanted to cut some of it out, but I decided to just leave it in, is that his arm doesn't work. His right arm doesn't work at all. It's actually made of wood. Uh, and in this scene, he actually takes his fingers, puts it into a fire, and then lights a cigar before he begins speaking. But you hear all the movements that he's making with it, and he has to like slap it around to move it in the direction that he needs to. So you'll hear those noises. The other thing is, is he's got a very thick accent to the point that the people in the town can't even fucking understand what the hell he's saying, and he's got to say it multiple times. But the funny thing is, he's the only one in the goddamn town that has a really weird accent. Everybody else talks fucking normal. Here, go ahead and listen to the mob scene. Well, the town scene, we'll call it. 
Uh, and you can hear what I mean. This man is different, I tell you. You can see that after you told him for five minutes. Yes? He's a Frankenstein. And they're all alike. It's in their blood. They can't help it. All those scientists, they're all alike. They say they're working for us. What they really want is to rule the world. That's enough now. I will not have this meeting become a free-for-all. These are very serious charges you're making. And all the more painful to us, your elders, because we still have nightmares from five times before. Now, we haven't heard from the one man most qualified to judge the situation fairly. Inspector Kemp, will you talk to us, please? It's an ugly zinc. And once you get one started, there is little chance of stopping it. Short of bloodshed. I think before we go around killing people, we had better make them here of our evidence. And We had better confirm the fact that young Frankenstein is indeed following in his grandfather's footsteps. What? Following in his grandfather's footsteps. 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 What is in order is for me to pay a little visit on the good doctor. Und? So have a nice, quiet chat. So he's going to go over and see the good doctor and try to understand if he's like his ancestors before him. But this is where we learn this has happened five times before. So he truly is along the lines of basically our first Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein. And I believe I said that way earlier and I realized that I'm not going to edit that out. But so... They've done this. They've tried to bring things to life. Like they experienced a monster in the town. And like nobody's gone up there to say anything to him. Or to even give him any inkling. And he's only worried about his grandfather. Where five other people have done this to him. It's freaking ridiculous. And of course I think we're also talking about the movies as well. They're being self-referential in this whole spectrum of films. Of the Frankenstein's monster. So we go back over to, into the mansion and we see that the doctor, he's calmed down some, not a whole lot. They're having dinner and that's where they actually hear the monster come to life. Reputation. Reputation. Oh, doctor, you mustn't do this to yourself. You've got to stop thinking about it. But look, you haven't even touched your food. There. Now I've touched it. Happy? You know, I'll never forget my old dad when these things would happen to him. 
the things he'd say to me. What did he say? What the hell are you doing in the bathroom day and night? Why don't you get out of there and give someone else a chance? Oh, maybe it's better this way. The poor, lifeless hulk. Maybe it is better off dead. What is this? Schwarzwald or Kirschtort? Mm. Oh, do you like it? I'm not partial to desserts myself, but this is excellent. Who are you talking to? To you. You just made a yummy sound, so I thought you'd like the dessert. I didn't make a yummy sound. I just asked you what it is. But you did. I just heard it. It wasn't me. It wasn't me? Well, now, look here. If it wasn't you, when it wasn't you... So now they've realized that the monster has actually been given life and it took a little time for everything to get started. They rush downstairs and they see the monster lying there on the table wide awake. Uh, the good doctor here, he looks over and he tells them to get the sedative ready and he's going to get him off the table. And when he does, he brings them over and then when the monster sees fire, it starts freaking the fuck out and starts choking the good doctor to where possibly my favorite part of the movie happens. What is it? What's the matter? Quick, give him the... Quick, give him the... What? Give him the what? Three syllables. First syllable sounds like... Head! Uh, sounds like head, bed, uh, said, 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 second syllable, little bird, uh, this, that, the, uh, said, uh, said, uh, dirty word, he said a dirty word. Oh, sounds like, uh, to give, said, said, uh, give, give him a said, a give. Oh, Tim, Tim. On the nosey. Oh. <laughs> 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 Set a give. Oh, Frederick, are you all right? Yes. Would you excuse me for one minute, dear? Of course, Doctor. Igor? <clears throat> May I speak to you for a moment? Of course. Sit down, won't you? Thank you. No, no, up here. Oh. Thank you. Now, that brain that you gave, was it Hans Delbrooks? No. Ah. Uh, would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Abby normal. I'm almost sure that was the name. <laughs> Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long 
54 inch wide gorilla. What? Is that what you're telling me? Wait, wait, get up! What? Three syllables, yes. I wonder who that could be at this hour. So the set a give scene is my favorite scene in this movie. But even that scene afterwards where he tells him about the brain, it's so ridiculous as well. The the whole time when he's getting choked out and he's doing the different gestures and then the the, the responses set a give still makes me fucking laugh all the time. And then she's like, "Oh, sedative, I totally get it." And his first response instead of saying thank you, and she stuck that thing right up his ass. I don't want to. Yeah, of course you could say that she's just poking him in the butt. No, she rears it up and she jams it so far up fucking Peter Boyle's ass. Oh, did I mention Peter Boyle plays the fucking monster in this movie, and he's fucking fantastic. Like, I love Peter Boyle. I think he's he's not necessarily underrated. I don't think people know as much of his work, but his comedic work I've always really liked. And I think he's great in this film as the monster, especially when he's giving his due at the end of the film. It's so ridiculous, it's great, and also one of the greatest scenes in the film as well, which we'll get to a little later on. But yeah, she just takes that fucking needle and she just jams it up there, square up his asshole, and gives him the sedative. Uh, and then the first response is just not thank you, not oh my god, I can't believe I survived. It's sedative. <laughs> It's so goddamn ridiculous. And then after learning about the name, and he's like, oh, it's Abby someone. Abby Normal, yes. It's like, there's no way that you can connect Abby. It's A-B. What the hell? And it's all one fucking word. Like, how can you mistake that? You had all these other fucking brains, and you just happened to grab that one. And then... When he's getting choked, he starts trying to play the charade, like the charades, to make her give him the sedative as well. And I almost wish they had gone through and they had said, give him the sedative, because it would have just, I would have fucking killed over. But there is a knock at the door upstairs, and who happens to be there but the inspector, who they discuss stuff over a game of darts. And it's more of just about his, like, lineage and to make sure that he's not going to be an evil guy. But the detective does fucking cheat at the game of darts, which pisses me off because who the fuck cares if you're going to win this game or not? He cares enough to where he makes those noises with his arm, which you'll hear in the clip. Excellent shot. This is the 20th century camp. Monsters are passe, like ghosts and goblins. Not to the good people of the spirit. Herr Doctor. Rosem is a very real thing, especially one. There is a Frankenstein residing in this house. Nice grouping. Thank you. I wouldn't think an intelligent fellow like you would fall for all this superstitious rot. It is not superstition that worries me here, Doctor, but genes and chromosomes. Rubbish! Mm, well, you might say, but this is Transylvania. And you are a Frankenstein. You were 
seem unusually upset by this discussion. Not in the least. I find it extremely amusing, that's all. Well, this was fun. And now, if you don't mind, Inspector, I'm a little bit tired. Then, I may give the villagers your complete assurance that you have no interest whatsoever in carrying on your grandfather's fork. May I take that for a yes? Mmm. Very well. I think you can find a way out by yourself, can't you? Of course. Until we meet again. Ah, uh, Beryl? Yes, drop by any time. We are always open. So he does leave, and then when they pull up the car, you see all the darts that he was throwing through the windows and everything. They're all lodged somehow in the wheels of the car, and the car rolls off with flat tires. It's really ridiculous with all the darts that he is throwing because they're hitting everything. They're going through, like he's able to do a really good placement when you first see him, and then all of a sudden the second half, especially when the inspector, he's like emphasizing specific words, and he's like missing his throws. He hits a cat, he throws it through a bunch of windows, he throws it on the side. And then one he throws behind him just throws it up in the air, but there's a big fucking crash, which is the last crash that you hear. But he manages also to take out all the tires of the goddamn inspector's car. It's really ridiculous. And of course, the monster, he's now woken up from everything. And so they all rush back downstairs to make sure that he's not getting loose. And who else do they see downstairs but the good Frau who is setting the creature free? Victor! We have done it! I'm going to set you free. Would you like that, my Nazarchiko? They wanted to hurt you, but I'm going to help you. Thank heavens that's over with. Stop! Don't come closer! What are you doing? I'm going to set him free! No! No, you mustn't! Yes! Are you insane? He'll kill you! No, he won't. Not this one. He is as gentle as a lamb. Stand back! Stand back! For the love of God, he has a rotten brain! It's not rotten. It's a good brain. It's rotten, I tell you, rotten. Ixnay on the Otten Ray. I'm not afraid. I know what he likes. That music. Yes. It's in your blood. It's in the blood of all Frankensteins. It erases the soul when words are useless. Your grandfather used to play to the creature he was making. Then it was you all the time. Yes. You played that music in the middle of the night. Yes. To get us into the laboratory. Yes. That was your cigar smoldering in the ashtray. Yes. And it was you who left my grandfather's book out for me to find. Yes. So that I would. Yes. Then you and Victor were... Yes! Yes! Say it! He was my boyfriend! 
So the whole music that we heard in the beginning of the film was really kind of like an awakening for both sides, right? She says here that it was used to calm the creature, but honestly, it was also used to awaken Dr. Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, to become Dr. Frankenstein, right? He heard the music and he was drawn to it just like the monster was. Now, she says it's in the blood of every fucking Frankenstein, and it's weird because there's no blood in the monster, right? But because it's like his creation, it's like his child. So I guess they're trying to make that type of correlation with this. And that's why the monster can be controlled by the music. Just like the good doctor here can also be controlled by the music. And was led to be to create this whole fucking monstrosity that is standing there before him. And it's ridiculous because even they get through, they say, oh yeah, I was his girlfriend. Meaning that she was probably his assistant. And... He then freaks out because he backs into one of the electrical, like, towers that they've got there, causing a bunch of sparks, and that freaks him the fuck out, and he bolts the fuck out of there. And they chase after him, and the good doctor here, he screams about what he's done, he can't believe it, and he needs to get him back. Then we go on a little journey of a couple of things that happen out in the wild. This stuff, I I wanted to play clips for, but because it's so visual that I didn't really want to, you know, play these long things without really any type of context to it. So, the first one is a throwback to the 1931 film that is him meeting the little girl, and she's playing right by a well. And they cut back to the parents talking about, well, you know, this is dangerous times out there. There may be a monster running loose with a Frankenstein in town. So they're busy boarding up their house, and they don't know where their daughter is, but she's outside, and she's showing him how to throw petals into a well. And there's... It's so ridiculous because I'm just, it's so funny even to think about it. Like, she's throwing everything down there and the parents are busy. They're like arguing with each other. Well, you were supposed to get her. Did you leave her outside? But they won't unfucking do the door and go fucking look for her. And meanwhile, she's there with the monster throwing shit in a well and she runs out of petals. And so she's like, what else can we throw down there? And. The expression on Peter Boyle's face is so ridiculous and so goddamn funny because he looks at the camera and he's just like, well, you know where the fuck this is going. And they go back inside the house and they're arguing and they're like, no, where could you be? Have you even checked upstairs? And they're like, oh, yeah, why don't we go upstairs and see if she's in the bed? And then we go back outside and the girl is perfectly fine. Instead, she wants to play on the seesaw with the good monster here. And he obliges, but he's, when he sits down, the force of him sitting down the opposite part of the seesaw throws her in the fucking air right through the window directly into bed, knocking her ass out and putting her under the covers for some reason when the parents walk into the room and they are all relieved because the girl is safe and she's just sleeping in the bed even though she's just been knocked the fuck out by being thrown through a window from a seesaw. The whole, like, ridiculousness of throwing her down the well and that that's what you're expecting is completely hilarious to me. And I was like, oh my god, I I don't remember if the scene ended up this way or a different way. And I was like, okay, it ended up a lot more comedic than it could have. But it still would have been hilarious for him to pick her up and just fucking dunk her down the well. I think that would have been really goddamn funny, but of course they did something different to not be exactly the same as the original film. 
Then he meets the blind man, the blind man that brings him into his house and tries to feed him soup. And this scene is really just sight gags all over the goddamn place. And this is where we see Gene Hackman for the first time and only time in the film as he plays the blind man. And a young Gene to me is very unrecognizable and it's really funny to see him in this role and he really even if I could recognize a young Gene with the makeup and the costume that he's given it does definitely make him look a lot different and so he's sitting there he's praying for a stranger to come and meet him because he hasn't had a guest in forever and because he can't see he doesn't know if anybody's ever been in his house maybe stolen from kind of sucks right and that's when the monster just busts through the door and then he's all excited because oh he's got a guest he does have a bell on the door so I guess he wouldn't be like too surprised if somebody came in and robbed him because then he would know by the bell that somebody's in the house. So he goes up to him, tries to ask his name. He does can't talk just yet. So he's like, oh, you're a mute. Well, just come down. I'll give you some soup. He tries to give him soup. He says, hold out your bowl. And then he pours the soup. But he misses the bowl and pours it right on his dick. God damn it. There's another fucking thing that you shouldn't do to somebody's dick. You shouldn't pour hot soup on somebody's fucking dick. Now we're at five things that you shouldn't do to somebody's dick. And he does it twice. I'll give him a pass because he's blind and he's not feeling out for the bowl. Okay, that's kind of a dick move. If you know you can't see, you should at least try to put the ladle in the bowl like here. And even with the monster here, you know, he's so hungry. He's like, yeah, go ahead and give me the soup. He should be able to just put it under the ladle and let him fucking pour it. But no, he's putting it at like five feet above and just fucking pouring all willy fucking nilly and getting it all over the guy's goddamn dick and burning that shit. And he's like, oh, you must like it very much, which he doesn't. Then he says, I've got something else special for you. And he's going to share a cigar with him. And of course, he starts freaking out at the fire. And so he's like, no, 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 here, I'll show you how to do it. So he lights it, and he's able to light it perfectly, right, for being a blind guy. But I guess he's done this quite a bit, even though he's been saving this cigar for some time. So he lights it, and then he says, here, I'll light it for you. And he takes the candle and lights Frank's finger on fire instead, which freaks him the fuck out. And he runs away, destroying the door in the process. Frankenstein's monster, not Frank. Um... And then, of course, he's sad because he's lost his friend. He said, we're going to be friends forever. And then when you burn somebody's fucking finger, you're not going to be friends with that guy anymore. So he's running through the town, the monster is. And then he starts hearing the music. And that's when the good doctor and Igor capture the monster and bring him back up to the that castle and put him inside of a room. And that's where... You know, the doctor, he believes that he has a way to get through to him. And the way to get through to him is, of course, through love. I'm going in there. Bring me that candle. No! no. Yes! Love is the only thing that can save this poor creature. And I am going to convince him that he is loved, even at the cost of my own life. No matter what you hear in there, no matter how cruelly I beg you, no matter how terribly I may scream, do not open this door or you will undo everything I've worked for. Do you understand? Do not open this door. Yes, Doctor. Nice working with you. 
me out of here. Get me the hell out of here. What's the matter with you people? I was joking. Don't you know a joke when you hear one? <laughs> Jesus Christ, get me out of here. Open this goddamn door. I'll kick your rotten heads in. Mommy. So he believes that he can fix him, but then when he starts getting up, it scares the living shit out of him, and he goes into complete panic mode. The Frau, she gets in front of the door, and she makes sure that nobody gets back in there. And I love that he's like, I'll kick your fucking heads in. Well, he doesn't say fucking, but he's like, you know, he's going to kick them out. He's going to, he's trying to threaten them to open the door. Of course, they're not going to do it, or the Frau's not going to let them do it. And then he ends up having the heart-to-heart -heart that he needs to have with the monster, and officially decides that he's no longer a Frankenstein, that he is a Frankenstein. And that now he's got the boy in a very, or the monster, in a very docile state, and he realizes how he can reach into him. Now, the next scene that we've got is probably the most famous scene from the whole movie and what everybody knows this movie from. If you've never seen this movie, you know what this scene is. Uh, he decides that he's going to present the monster to everybody. And what better way, besides showing that, hey, it can do all its movements and all that stuff, but let's also make sure that he can do a musical number. Distinguished colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, tonight it is my great privilege of introducing to you a man whose family name was once both the Miss Infamy. And now, may I present to you Dr. Baron Friedrich von Frankenstein. My fellow scientists and neurosurgeons, ladies and gentlemen, a few short weeks ago, coming from a background, believe me, as conservative and traditionally grounded in scientific fact as any of you, I began an experiment in, incredulous as it may sound, the reanimation of dead tissue. <laughs> what I have to offer you might possibly be the gateway to immortality. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present, for your intellectual and philosophical pleasure, the creature. Please remain in your seats, I beg you. We are not children here. We are scientists. I assure you, there is nothing to fear. First, may I offer for your consideration a neurological demonstration of the primary cerebellar functions, balance, and coordination. Walk heel to toe. Ladies and gentlemen, up until now, you've seen the creature perform the simple mechanics of motor activity. But for what you are about to see next, we must enter quietly into the realm of genius. Ladies and gentlemen, mesdames et messieurs, 
Damen und Herren, from what was once an inarticulate mass of lifeless tissues, may I now present a cultured, sophisticated man about town. Hit it! If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up like a million dollar trooper. Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper. Come, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or rumbarellas in their mitts. So the musical number does go on for quite some time, and it's really ridiculous, like the whole setup. Like, this is how you're going to prove to everybody that what you've done is absolutely fantastic, which it truly is. I think the fact that the monster can walk, that it can, you know, move around with perfect motor function, that it's able to see everybody, that would be amazing enough. But no, you have to do a whole musical number to put on the Ritz come on like that's the way that you're gonna prove to everybody that everything is perfectly fine and that look at how amazing i am because it can fucking like <laughs> yelp a couple of words and he's constantly like feeding him treats at the same time like he's a fucking dog and that hey you've done good good boy here here's your treat mr monster and then you know they do some choreography and there's a lot of tap dancing there's a little tap dancing section for the monster specific it's really like it's entertainingly funny it's not like laugh out loud funny to me but it's really entertaining and really like it's really stupid like this is the way that you're gonna do this and that you're gonna prove to everybody that hey i've done this magical thing other than you brought dead tissue back to life like they're not gonna believe like the fact that they're like Oh, we're not going to say anything and then we're seeing you like they're being a fucked up crowd and he brings something like magical to life and you guys are still shitting on him. It's so fucking ridiculous and it does get cut short because one of the lights in front, it shorts out, causes a little fire and then the monster stops because it freaks out and then everybody starts getting fucking mad at him. Why? Why are you getting upset at him? It makes no sense. You saw a dancing, talking-ish monster on the stage, and yet now that it's not completing the fucking routine, you're gonna throw fucking cabbage at him? What the hell is wrong with you? Of course, this enrages the monster because it demeans him. Who wants cabbage thrown at you? What is this, fucking New York? Is he fucking cabbage now? What the hell is going on? So... Of course, he starts going crazy. There's also the thing that the good doctor does get upset with him because he's like, what are you trying to make me look like an idiot? What, you brought this thing to life? You think that that's going to make you look like an idiot? The fact that he stopped and he's afraid of fucking fire? There's probably something fucking wrong up here. And yet, here you go. So he goes out into the audience. And of course, the local uh, constables in town, they all manage to subdue him and then take him off and chain him up inside one of their jails. We go back and we see the doctor distraught and Inga's trying to comfort him. And both of them are trying to figure out a way 
to fix the monster while Jean's trying to figure out a way to fix the monster while Inga is figuring out a way to help the good doctor and fix him. Chained. Chained like a beast in a cage. Oh, doctor, I feel so terrible. There's only one answer. If I could find a way to equalize the imbalance in his cerebral spinal fluid, why, he'd be as right as rain. But how? How? Before it's too late. Oh, Frederick. If only there was some way I could relieve this torture you are going through. If there was some way I could help to relieve the tension. If there was just some way I could give you a little peace. And that's when they have sex. Like, she literally takes his hand and he puts it, or she puts it on her chest, not on her boob. There's actually one blooper out there where she does put it on her boob, and then they all begin laughing because that's not necessarily where it was supposed to end up. But that's basically what they're saying. Like, he's like, how can I help you? How can I make you feel better? Oh, (laughs) let's have sex so they have sex on top of the table where the monster was created and they actually managed somehow i don't know how they did it but raise it up to the top and then when the frau comes in there to tell him that his fiance has suddenly decided to arrive she has they have to lower them all the way down and it's really ridiculous like (laughs) It's it's pretty damn funny at the same time. But the fact that they would go all the way up there, I guess it's pretty private if you're going up there. But that's the way that they managed, or that Inga managed to fix the good doctor. And the way that he wants to fix the monster is somehow change the way that his mind thinks. You know, the cerebellum cortex or where the fuck it is. But basically maybe like drain the fluid and give him something else like fix the missing parts of the abnormal brain and he thinks he knows exactly how he's going to do it but of course he gets distracted by sexy times with the fantastic looking inga and then of course that's when his fiance finally decides to surprise him and shows up and she does arrive and things are just a little awkward between everybody darling Darling. Surprise. Surprise. Love me. Love you. Well, let's turn in. Darling. It's been a long day. I'm sure you're very tired. I'll just pay the driver. Darling. What? Surprise. I, uh, yes. Love me? Well. Well, let's turn in. Darling. Yes. Say nothing. Act casual. Ready? Yes. I think. Yes. I am a bit tired after all. I'd like you to meet my assistants, Inga and Igor. How do you do? How do you do? Uh, This is my financier, Elizabeth. Oh, I'm so happy to meet you at last. My financier. Excuse me, darling. What is it exactly that you do do? Uh, well, I assist Dr. Frankenstein in the laboratory. We have intellectual discussions, and we... As a matter of fact, we were just having fun as you were driving. May I? What? Uh, What? Igor, would you give me a hand with the bags? Certainly. You take the blonde, and I'll take the one in the tavern. Oh. Stop that. 
and talking about the luggage. Yes, master. Ladies, it's going to be a long night. If you need any help with the girls, please don't hesitate. So there's a lot of random innuendo in this scene, which is relatively funny because when she says intellectual conversation, you know, they're kind of talking about something else, but they only really did it the one time. So it's kind of, it's funny, but ridiculous. And it's funny because it just happened right away. You know, well, you know, there's a lot of reasons why it could be funny, but that's why I find it funny. So they go back inside we go back over to the monster and we see that he's now being tortured by one of the constables that are there and it's he's lighting a match in his face multiple times and he sees that he's getting afraid oh you're afraid of a little bit of fire well let me taunt you some more to the point that you break out of your fucking change and you fucking knock me down because i don't deserve that shit by fucking with a monster no you totally deserve that shit so he escapes and the good doctor now finds out that the monster has and he tries to get something out of his fiance and she's still like at the point where she's like no we have to be traditional and really doesn't offer him any type of a reassurance kind of does now that the monster's running around because she's still more worried about the relationship that they're going to have the wedding that they are going to have more than what is going on in his mind Loose? He's broken loose? Do you know what that means? Darling, you mustn't worry so. I suppose you're right. Of course I am. Now come along like a good boy. What would I do without you? Is your room just down the hall in case I get the fright during the night? <laughs> well, yes, but I, I thought perhaps tonight, under the circumstances, I might... Stay here with you. Would you want me like this now? So soon before our wedding, so near we can almost touch it. Yes! Whoa! Oh boy! Or, or, to wait just a little while longer when I can give myself to you without hesitation, when I can be totally and unashamedly and legally yours. That's a tough choice. You're a tough guy. I suppose you're right. Of course I am. I always am. Now give me a kiss and say good night. No tongues. <laughs> good night, darling. Mm -hmm. Good night, sweetheart. Mm -hmm. I love you. Mm -hmm. You love me? Mm -hmm. I love you, honey. <laughs> Sweet dreams, darling. Good night and let the bed bugs bye. This scene is so ridiculous because he's literally just had sex with Inga and now he wants to get it on with her. And he's like, hey, you know, under the circumstances of everything that's going on, maybe we could actually get something. And even when she's like, oh, you don't want me like this. He's like, yes. And he goes and bites down on her boob. And you don't really, well, maybe you do sometimes bite down on boobs, you know, depending on the person. But he's obviously like so sexually frustrated with her that he thought, well, maybe tonight's going to be the night because, hey, I'm totally upset. And this is what's going to possibly calm him down. And Inga would do it, but she's still not going to. And she's like, no, that we're not legally together yet and we can legally do it. But it's obvious that she's not of like, she's not like 
underage or anything like that, but like legal in terms of the eyes of God, I guess, that they can have sex together or anything like that. It, it's really ridiculous, especially with what happens next. Because after he goes away and the monster's running loose, the monster goes back to the only place that he knows, which is the castle. And what does he do? He goes inside her room and he kidnaps her. And we see her and she, he like wakes up and now her hair is like, she's got the streaks in her hair like the bride of Frankenstein. And she's looking above him. And of course, he also has only one thing on his mind, but does she give in to that temptation? Well, let's find out. Where am I? Who are you? What? Who? Who? What are you? What do you, what do you want? What do you want to do to me? Calm down. I'm not afraid of you. How much do you want to let me go? My father is very rich. You can have the entire world at your fingertips. Listen, I have to be back by 11.30. I'm expecting a very important call. Speak! Speak! Why don't you speak? Anyway... Oh, oh, you can't be serious. I'm a... I... Oh, my God. Woof. I'm, I'm, I'm engaged, and, and once he took... But, but I didn't... It was never... All the... Uh, oh, my... Oh, uh, my... Uh, Okay, so what the fuck is this shit? She sees this giant fucking, what is it, Schwanzenstucker? And then she's like totally okay with everything. Like, she hasn't done a single thing with fucking the good doctor over here. She hasn't, like, she, he couldn't kiss her, he couldn't hug on her, he couldn't hold her hands, he couldn't do anything. And when he finally did get to get a kiss from her, she says, no tongue. And then meanwhile, the monster that's basically going to fucking rape her, and she sees everything, I don't want anything to do with it. And then all of a sudden she sees that big fucking dick, and she's like, okay, I'm totally down with this, let's fucking go. And she lets him go at her seven fucking times it's so goddamn ridiculous like i get it it's meant to be kind of funny you know the whole thing but uh, it doesn't really hold up that well nowadays with this whole thing that like he's just gonna manhandle her and she's okay with it totally because hey he's fucking packing and that's the way that things are gonna go so she now falls in love with the creature and we get to go back over to the townsfolk and they're basically now getting ready to riot because the monster got loose. He's going to cause a bunch of problems and everything. And now it's time for the mob to gather together because the mob is smoking and there's no more monster. I mean, there's no more monster that's going to be happening in this fucking town. So they all decide to storm the castle. We go back and we see that the monster's done doing his seven times along with the fiance. And he starts hearing the violin music playing in the distance. And that takes him away from her. And she's like, what? You're going to go out there and you're going to go tell all your friends and everything that you're able to hit that? Well, fine. And then she's like, I think I'm in love with him. So the monster then travels, finds the music. And we see that the good doctor and Igor are playing the music while Inga's at the top 
kind of looking over to see if the monster's actually coming. The monster does make it over there and climbs the entire tower, and at the point where she's going to help him get over the last step, he's like, no, he can do it by himself. And so the monster does, and he gets to the top of the tower, and he is absolutely exhausted. So the doctor, he's figured out how he's going to be able to give the monster some sort of fix to that brain. And it's going to have to do with some type of like weird transfer between the two of them. Iger really, like he says, is this what you want to do? Because this is going to risk both your life and his. And he's like, yes, because I want them to see that he's not a bad person. Thing. he's a good monster he just has that abnormal brain and i think i know how to exactly fix him so he lays down on one side of the table and the monster lays down on another table beside him they both wear these caps and they start the whole process where there's like weird fluid changing in between them basically he's giving a part of himself over to the monster so the monster can be more normal and then that's when you see the mob start storming the castle. And they manage to break through and they're climbing up the tower. And they're counting down. They say, oh, they only need so much more time. And then you see them again. They're climbing more. They're almost there. And then he says, okay, seven more seconds. And they begin the countdown. And when it comes down to the last couple of seconds, the mob breaks through and they stop the whole process. And so the mob starts going over to uh, Frankenstein's table and they start grabbing him. And that's when the monster wakes up and he begins to speak. Not like he spoke during the whole performance of the Ritz, but now as a sophisticated creature, which changes the minds of everyone. Put that man down! It's the monster! Nah, it can't be! It is! I said, put that man down! What just who do you think you are? That you ordered these people about. I am the monster! <laughs> yeah, I see that you are the monster. <clears throat> For as long as I can remember, people have hated me. They looked at my face and my body, and they ran away in horror. In my loneliness, I decided that if I could not inspire love, which was my deepest hope, I would instead cause fear. <sighs> I live because this poor, half-crazed genius has given me life. He alone held an image of me as something beautiful. And then, when it would have been easy enough to stay out of danger, he used his own body as a guinea pig to give me a calmer brain and a, a somewhat more sophisticated way of expressing myself. Well, this is, of course, an entirely different situation. As the leader of this community, may I be the first to offer you my hand in friendship. <laughs> Thank you. You are entirely welcome. But now, let us all go to my house for a little sponge cake and a little wine. And shit! To the lumberyard! <laughs>
So he pulls out the guy's hand accidentally, but he's totally okay with it because now the monster is able to speak with some sort of like sophistication. Basically, he's become kind of a normal person, but he got more of his like cultured side. And we see that everybody is happy. The town is all glad that everything came to be. And we see that now the fiance is now married to <laughs> the monster. And she's got the hair like the bride of Frankenstein. And he's sitting in the bed and he's reading the paper. And she's still insatiable and wants him like really badly. And we see him kind of wink at the camera. On the flip side, we see that Inga and the good doctor have now married and they're happy and they're setting up but something's not quite right with him and he starts kind of groaning and having that animal instinct that the monster had and then we get to the final scene of the movie Inga wonders a couple of things what possibly could have been transferred over to the good doctor from the monster when they did the transfer of personalities or like like I don't know exactly how to say it and it's not personalities but, like, I guess brain. They each have a part of each other's brain now. And, well, we find out exactly what he got. And then the movie ends. The feeling is mortal. You know, it's a puzzlement. There's something I've always wanted to ask you about that operation. You know, in the transference part... The monster got part of your wonderful brain. But what did you ever get from him? No. Oh, I don't believe. Oh, 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 oh. Sweet mystery of life. At last I found you. And that was Young Frankenstein. So it still holds up for me today. I still absolutely love this movie, but I have a deeper appreciation for it. And I actually have to ask, or say, not ask, uh, say that Dave is the one that really has garnered that better appreciation for this movie. Because if he hadn't asked me to do those Universal films, to do the three uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon films that I don't think I would have understood this movie even better without going through those films first, because this truly is a love letter to those. Just like The Shape of Water is a love letter to the Creature films, this is a love to all those old Universal Horror films from the 30s. From the sets, to the way that it was shot, to the way the music is, to the wipes, 
to the sets, to everything in this film, even the way the script is done, how it reflects upon each part of those films and makes so many referential like statements to all of those movies. Is it funny? Yes. To me, it is very funny. To you, maybe not. Maybe this is kind of cheesy humor, but it could be something that you've never seen before, and maybe you'll have a better love of the film after you take a look at it from that direction. If you've never seen it before, it might be kind of a shock to you when you first see it. But if you've been following the podcast for a while, you can maybe see why I really love this film. It, again, it's not my favorite Mel Brooks movie that is out there, but it's definitely at the top. I would say it's probably number four out of my list of Mel Brooks films. With, of course, the top being Blazing Saddles, uh, then Spaceballs at a very close second. Actually, it's probably flipped. And I think he even said that. Even thinking about it in the beginning, I think Spaceballs, yeah, it possibly is my favorite Mel Brooks film. Then Blazing Saddles. And then, surprisingly enough, uh, as cheesy as it is, I love Dracula Dead and Loving It. I don't know why. I think it's Leslie Nielsen. But again, it's because of the time frame, because I didn't respect this movie enough to like it as much as I do now, especially after this seeing, um, this viewing, this seeing, what the fuck am I talking about? So if I have to rate this film, which I always do, there is no gore in this movie, but I don't rate anything zero, so it's going to be at a one. Um, but really, there's nothing to see. There's nothing really bad. Oh, uh, the wooden arm comes out. That's about it. That's as gory as you get. I guess the brains, you could say, are kind of like, they're, they're good. The makeup is really good on them. But there's nothing that is really like gore, even for comedic gore purposes. Um, and then in terms of the crap factor, it's a two out of five. There's incongruity, like inconsistencies, incongruities. What the hell? This is getting towards the end of the podcast, as you can finally hear. Um, but there's some inconsistencies with things, but I do think that a lot of them are per- on purpose. There's a couple of things that I felt like I think the Frau could have been used a little more. Uh, I think Igor, like, he's kind of cheesy, but it's fun at the same time. I wish that he had more, but he's most of the comedic moments in the myth, the film. Um, and sometimes, you know, Gene Wilder does go really, really out of his way to be over the top. And in a couple scenes, it's a little annoying. And then there's a couple things that just as a sign of the times, like the whole thing with the fiance being okay with the monster having sex with her because he's got a giant dick. Uh, and then Inga, and you know, because she kind of falls for him and she's just kind of the sex like object of his desire. It's what he doesn't have with his fiance and what he's able to finally get. And he still can't get that from her even after he's already had it. So, but overall, it's still a wonderful film. That's why in the fun factor, it's a five out of five because I love everything and diving deeper into some of it in understanding the reasons why you made certain choices make it so much better for me than I even originally thought. And the connection to the old Universal films make it so much more fun to me. But there are some really standout scenes and standout performances. Peter Boyle as the monster, as simple as the role is, he's wonderful. The Gene Hackman scene is one of the funnier scenes. Fucking Gene Wilder just fucking blows my mind with... Basically every movie that he does, he would be like to me nowadays, like Samuel L. Jackson, even if the movie's going to be shitty, 
I'm probably going to enjoy his part. And even in some of the worst Gene Wilder movies, he's still utterly fantastic. And I just absolutely love the guy. It's one of those comedians that I just miss so much. Um, even though towards the end of his life, he wasn't doing a whole lot. And it's funny to think that there are only a couple people that are still alive in this movie to this day. The fact that Cloris Leachman is like 96 years old and still with us is absolutely amazing. Terry Garr is still with us, but everybody else has sadly left us. And this is like a comedic powerhouse of different actors and Madeline Kahn's character could have been in a little bit more but I can only take so much Madeline Kahn in sometimes but if you haven't seen the movie Clue she is fucking fantastic in that movie and you should see Clue because it's also one of my favorite childhood uh, comedies that you can see um, so overall I'm gonna give this a four out of five Frankensteins um, because it doesn't necessarily get the five because there's still a couple of things that I'm a little miss of, but I unabashedly, I love this movie, so it gets a 4 out of 5. And I hope you guys really enjoyed going through it with me. So, instead of going, originally I was going to do two Gene Wilder films. The second one I was going to do was Haunted Honeymoon, uh, but I decided against it. And I kind of did a little Hail Mary because I didn't realize this movie was coming out. And it actually fits the theme, and you know what, it's right now. Now, if you're interested... You can listen to Beyond the Void um, if you've never heard that podcast. This is going to be their shout out for this one. I did an episode with them a little while back ago, uh, but they just released an episode that talked about this film along with, uh, I think, Necromantics. Uh, I could be completely wrong with that title because I'm probably thinking about the band and not the movie. Uh, but they did this film along with it, and you can actually get uh, a lot of good information. But I kind of avoided the spoiler section because... I hadn't seen it, and I had picked it for this podcast, and I need to go back and listen to the rest of the episode. But, guys, we're going to be watching for the next one from 2019. Well, I'll let the trailer speak for itself. We are going to the Banana Splits. (gasps) Sometimes at night... I see the splits riding around in the little cars, laughing and singing. Who's excited to see the banana splits? Yeah! Rebecca, I'm canceling the show. What? Hey, kids, put on your happiest faces because the banana split show is about to begin. Where are the children? Mom, get out of here! Time's almost up! Why are you doing this to me? Dad, please! Let me out! Now the show can go on forever and ever and ever! Come on, you fuzzy son of a... I just really want your brother's birthday to be perfect. So this is a film that when I first heard about it, I was like, what the fuck is this going to be? Um, then I saw the trailer, especially when they said Banana Splits movie is like, okay, well, who gives a shit? Like, I loved the Banana Splits when I was a kid. You know, it was on and it was already 
past its prime, but it was fun to watch when I was really little. And then I was like, oh, what the fuck? And then I found out it's a horror movie, and I'm like, what the fuck do you mean it's a horror movie? And on IMDb, it doesn't get a good rating because a lot of people are like, how did they ruin my childhood and whatever? And I'm like, fuck, I have to see this fucking movie. And it happened to come out last week, the week previous to this episode was released. So I was like, you know what? Perfect. I want to do something more modern, uh, and you don't get more modern than this. It's currently available on VOD, so you can watch it on things like iTunes, YouTube, Amazon. You can rent it just fine. I'm pretty sure that somebody out there has something. Maybe there's like a viewing party or something that you can watch. Um, but the one old man that talks in it that's in the trailer, if Dick Miller was still alive, that would be Dick Miller's fucking role. Like, that's the first thought that I got when I heard that guy and I saw him even the trail like they're trying to get a dick mill or wannabe or something to be in it so um yeah make sure that you watch the film for the next one I'm gonna be watching it probably this week um the episode may come out a little bit earlier than normal only because um we have a special guest that's going to be coming into town um and is going to be hanging with us for the weekend and you're going to be able to see our little crazy adventures and a couple of things um if especially if you follow the twitter you'll probably see a lot of stuff with the four of us um and so I want to make sure that I've got enough time to spend with him and the, everybody. And instead of releasing on the regular day, it might just maybe re- released early in the morning and I'll record it early. We'll figure it out. Uh, but everything will be ready by that time. So with that being said, of course, you can always follow the podcast on things like Twitter at T-O underscore T underscore podcast. Facebook.com slash Terrible Terror Podcast, Instagram Terrible Terror Podcast, and YouTube the Terrible Terror Podcast on YouTube, uh, where I'm late in putting up a bunch of videos that should be up there. So, um, guys, I really appreciate you listening. Please, you know, all the normal things, rate and review on everything that's out there. Uh, and we will talk to you next time when uh, we see the banana splits. See you later. <laughs>